Welcome to Woking Up. White supremacy. White supremacy is the fringe of the fringe. This is a mini-series brought to you by Polite Conversations. All of a sudden we can't talk about Neanderthal DNA anymore. Here I'll talk about my journey into and out of being a new atheist Sam Harris fan. In and of itself, in and of itself, that video is not evidence of racism. I'm your ex-Muslim host, Ina. No, not the right-wing kind. Thank you for tuning in. This is how the left will die. Oh, hello, Wokesters. Fancy bumping into you here. My, my, you've been busy since we last chatted. I mean, I leave you for a couple of weeks and you take away Mr. Potato Head's genitals. That is the dangerous, woke authoritarianism Sam Harris has been warning us about for years now. It wouldn't have got this bad if we had only listened to the wise and enlightened one. And shush, 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 never mind that Boise State University has just apparently canceled 52 diversity classes because lawmakers were looking to rein in on social justice. And never mind that they've advanced a budget, cutting funding, threatened further cuts, and added provisions, barring Idaho universities from using state funding to support social justice activities, clubs, events, or organizations. Never mind all that. The larger issue here is that Hasbro decided to maybe slightly tweak its Mr. Potato Head packaging. Focus on the goal, guys. Wokeness, wokeness, wokeness. The absolute worst thing humanity has ever had to face, perhaps. Nothing else threatens free speech in this way, especially if you, you know, pay no attention to the right at all, where the government is actually trying to silence people and outlaw wokeness and quote-unquote divisive concepts like discussions about racism and sexism. Free speech for everyone, especially people we disagree with, like Nazis. But not for the woke, seems to be the IDW line on this. And on that note, welcome to episode 5, you wonderful SJWs. If you're enjoying this show, do consider supporting via Patreon, because, you know, if you don't, that would just be cancel culture. You'd be silencing me or something. (laughs) Totally kidding, of course, of course. A more serious reason to support the show is that every time you sign up on my Patreon, Sam Harris sheds a tear. For real, though. If you support it, that would be wonderful, because... It's a tiny show that needs listeners like you to help it survive and thrive. You'll also get access to full episodes of Woking Up early, because at first these episodes are only available in full via Patreon, since this whole thing began as a Patreon-exclusive project. I do eventually release them publicly. Episodes 1 to 4 are out in full now on your podcatchers and on Spotify, too. But if you're listening to a 20 or 30 minute version of this right now, that's not the entire episode, but just a segment for public release. Just thought I'd clarify that. Anywho, I'm glad you're joining me today for episode 5. We're going to talk a bit about the politics of identity, aka identity politics. And like cancel culture, 
This too is something right-wingers and IDW types like Sam Harris are extremely coherent and consistent on. But before we dive into any IDW or Sam's hot takes, I thought I would talk more about my identity. Because as you may know, ex-Muslim women, especially those who've suffered Islamic oppression in a theocracy, are often used as pawns by the rational ones. So I wanted to unpack that a bit and give you some background. First, what about my identity made me an always fairly progressive person, I thought, attracted to this edgy atheist scene in the first place? Well, it honestly didn't seem as obviously bad back then as it does now. I mean, Sam was once the guy pushing back against targets like Bill O'Reilly. It seemed like a good thing. But there were always darker aspects to the whole new atheism thing, too, of course. I do think it has shifted significantly to the right over the last few years, but the seeds of that shittiness were always there, and I kick myself for not seeing them sooner. So I'm constantly trying to figure out how and why I fell into it. I think about that a fair bit, because... It's such a cringe period for me, and here's some of what I think happened. And none of these are excuses, mind you. Just explanations. Oh, and pardon the dramatism here. Um, I'm I'm practicing my editing skills, you know? So, growing up in a theocracy as a woman... Having an automatic second-class status... Then being forced by the state to cover up, to segregate from men, seeing and experiencing the terror of literal morality police firsthand, seeing them hit my mom's ankle in front of me when I was little as we walked past, just because her headscarf slipped, things like that, you know, left me with deep emotional scars and trauma, and unbelievable anger around the topic of religion because all of this was, you know, justified by it. When I was going through puberty and my mom got me my first training bra, to my preteen mind, it was embarrassing enough on its own that she noticed I needed one. But she also had to have another conversation with me, one she didn't choose to have but knew she had to to keep me safe. The conversation was about how I'm growing up and looking more and more like a woman, less like a kid, hence the training bra, and looking more uh, developed would make me a target for morality police. So this was the age I would also have to start wearing an abaya or burqa. And it was like a double blow for me. Not only was I going through regular, awkward puberty, where your developing breasts are kind of embarrassing, I was going to have to start wearing a big, giant, black cloak to hide the shape of my body, too, which only drew attention to it and made the whole thing much more embarrassing and awkward. If puberty wasn't tough enough already, try doing it as a girl in Saudi fucking Arabia. And just little wounds like that along the way. I can't count how many times I was made to feel less human 
because I was a girl or a woman. And as I said earlier, it was all neatly justified by faith and scripture. I'm still not a fan of it at all, to be quite honest. Like, not even in the slightest. I do think it's a relic of the past, inherently conservative and trad lifey. I really wish we'd all outgrow it, and even the progressive versions of it are problematic to me. Sure, they are progressive on the surface, but I do have issues with the structures of religious suppression they too indirectly legitimize. But anyway, I'm not here to lecture anyone on all that right now. It has, since my new atheist days, become a much less important issue for me, especially in the urgency of a political climate where the far right has been thriving and so-called intellectuals are attempting to revive things like race science again, which seems like a much more immediate threat to me as someone who exists in the West now, where at least in Canada, religion has largely been defanged. Obviously, I continue to push back against conservatives and conservatism in the Muslim community in any way I can without being hijacked by anti-Muslims. I do want to take a minute to point out some glaring rational genius brain hypocrisy that always kind of poked at me and bothered me. You know, pushing back against Islamic conservatism and right-wingery was always applauded in the atheist scene. Everyone was suddenly very progressive and very SJW, dare I say, (laughs) in that context. Um, Even the most anti-SJW types were fine with talking about recognizing structures of oppression and privilege when it came to religion. Heck, even mansplaining was completely accepted when it came to talking about scriptures and texts and interpreters and preachers. And if I brought up something like Muslim microaggressions even towards ex-Muslims and non-Muslims in Islamic communities, things like expecting everyone to use religious Muslim greetings, etc., that too was embraced and celebrated, but... Fuck, the contrast was blinding when that social justice or critical lens was turned inwards or turned towards Western right-wingery or injustices here. And it was really confusing and took me a bit to figure out what was happening and that I wasn't just imagining these blatant double standards. (laughs) Definitely no identity politics or tribalism happening here, nuh-uh. But I digress. Back to my current views on religion. I just wanted to make it clear that though my dislike of religion remains, my views have evolved and matured greatly. I am much more happy to ally with progressive theists who share some of my values rather than right-wing atheists who share none of them, except for a rejection of God, which on its own is pretty meaningless and empty. My rejection of all that stemmed from questions that came from my progressive views, as I've said before, from my feminism and from my desire to fight for minorities to make the world a better, fairer place. 
And to see the online atheist scene today embodying the exact opposite of all those things makes me feel like I want nothing to do with that. I honestly feel such a great sense of relief that I escaped it, thought my way out of it, updated my views, just like when I was leaving religion, you know? I mean, some of those extremely rational people are perpetually stuck in 2012. It is always the ones who tout their free-thinking abilities and critical thinking skills that are so set in their ways, so dogmatic. I'm very glad to not be a part of that scene anymore, but yeah... Theocratic oppression and unrelated trauma unfortunately leaves you vulnerable to that kind of shallow, angry, edgy situation. At first, when I started speaking about having left religion publicly, I wanted to talk about it all the time. It felt cathartic to lash out and get my anger out. Simple, quick answers are so seductive and satisfying. Yes, religion is the main problem in the world. That's what we have to push back against and everything will be so much better. (laughs) Oh boy, did the Trump era and the atheist Christian alliances against wokeness or any sort of progress or justice disprove that. But anyway, eventually you grow tired of hitting that one note, or at least I did. Religion, bad. Religion, not true. And then you start searching for more. More meaning. More depth. More complexity. More understanding of the current, moving, shifting world around you. Outside of the low-hanging fruits like owning creationists. I mean, certainly when I see the many edgelordy ex-Muslims today, I can sort of understand what put them on that path. But what I can't understand is when after years and years and years and years of spouting the same shit, some of them have not changed a bit, have not sought out anything more than Islam bad, have not been alarmed as the far right hijack their voices and talking points, and instead have become so steeped themselves in the hatred and anger that they have fully embraced right wing and even far right talking points on subjects other than Islam too. And they've come full circle to defend the conservative values they claim to have rejected Islam because of. I am beyond appalled when I see an ex-Muslim woman from Pakistan tweeting furiously understandably, about some mullah's regressive views on women. But then, turn around and fucking embrace Jordan Peterson or some shit, and walk down that anti-feminist path with him, because he said Islam sucks and they saw an ally or something. For some ex-Muslims and movement atheists who've fallen further and further down that right-wing rabbit hole, it's sadly very much about their political short-sightedness. They hate the woke and the left because they won't join them with the same passion in focusing solely on Muslims and Islam. Because why would they? And that makes them enemies on everything else. And when the right start love-bombing, and are more than happy to single Muslims and Islam out for criticism, they 
become the allies and the perceived quote-unquote truth-tellers. And from there, they follow them down every fucking garbage road. Anti-trans, anti-BLM, anti-feminism, anti-anti-racism, pro-race and IQ, pro-Trump, anti-immigrant, anti-lockdown even at times. And that is unfortunately why the ex-Muslim scene became Candace owens and why the atheist scene in general became so Dave Rubenized. <laughs> Thankfully, I got out before I was anywhere near that level of garbage politics, to be clear. But still, even being more centristy in that time, and unironically using terms like regressive left, is so cringe and embarrassing to me now, you have no idea. But yeah, for me, I guess it was a few things. First, the religious trauma, and then I think being what they call a third culture kid also had an impact in that I have always felt like an outsider everywhere. A third culture kid or individual is defined as someone who was raised in a culture other than their parents or the culture of their nationality, and also lived in a different environment during a significant part of their childhood development years. So... My being Pakistani, but also from Saudi, but segregated from local Saudis, was a pretty strange environment to grow up in. Unique, sure, but also isolating, and something that can leave you feeling rootless and in search of an identity, a community. I never would be accepted as Saudi, because they just don't do that, even if you're born there. And never would be fully accepted as Pakistani enough because my upbringing was very different. My education was Western. Such a tangled web of different cultural influences. You know, I envy the people who get asked the where are you from or what's your background question and they don't have to think for like five minutes about what the simplest way to answer that would be or even the people who have a distinct answer to what's your hometown, or heck, even those who can visit their childhood home. And, you know, for much of my teenage life and young adult life, I satisfied that search for identity and community through subcultural affiliations, dog collars and spikes and lace corsets and bondage cuffs. Not quite the fashion choices you'd think of, coming from someone who grew up in Saudi Arabia. (laughs) which was always an interesting juxtaposition when I was finally in Canada. Whenever people saw me and found out more about my background, the looks on their faces were highly amusing. Saudi Arabia would just not compute, you know? And then as I left uni life behind and settled into full-on adult life when it was no longer practical to spend the day in six-inch heeled goth boots and go clubbing every other night, I eventually discovered the subculture of online atheism. Yay! And what a subculture that was. My goodness. At first, it felt like, wow, These are my people, finally. I feel like I can discuss my views about religion and things openly. (laughs) And then it was like those zombie movies where everyone you know is slowly being infected. Except in this case, it was being exposed as some sort of bigot. Every direction you turned, everyone you respected, they turn around and fuck, they're 
racism zombie too. Ah, run. <laughs> that is really what it felt like. So yeah, a little less fun than exploring the local fetish night. But I think a few other experiences along the way had sort of prepped me for the new atheist scene too. By 2013, I was just dipping my toes into the online atheist scene, but not fully immersed yet. I used to write a blog about sexuality in Pakistan, the first and only one of its kind back in the day, and I had made a quick decision about anonymity. I thought about it, should I do this under my real name or under a pseudonym, and I thought, hmm, I will be writing about sex, and that is just not tolerated, especially for women in conservative Pakistani culture. Who knows what the fuck kind of trouble I'm about to get into, so why get involved with the hassle? I would not want my family to get dragged into it or anything. And boy, am I glad I went with the pseudonym. I couldn't count the amount of different types of threats I've received since I started blogging in 2010 from different types of bigots too. Religious bigots, conservative Pakistani bigots, conservative Western bigots, sexists, racists, Islamists, phrenologists, and most recently, self-identifying incels. So, (laughs) a wide variety, a rainbow, a bouquet of bigots even. But then, as I started writing about sexuality, it got harder to avoid the topic of religion and its impact on sexuality in Pakistani culture and Muslim culture. And eventually I started getting more hate and rape threats for saying the mildest religion-critical things. But that again caused the religious trauma to bubble up and surface, and I found myself more and more drawn to talking about religion as opposed to sex and sexuality. And that became more and more controversial, and I got more and more hate, which made me think I certainly was not going to back down. And the cycle continued. That's where my Twitter handle, Nice Mangoes, originally came from, by the way. My blog about sexuality in Pakistan. If you've wondered why that's so random and unrelated to what I talk about now, that is the background. Then in about 2014, I wrote a children's book just to share on my blog because I wanted to address the topic of homophobia from a specifically Pakistani perspective, and it kind of went viral. It was picked up by BuzzFeed and tons of other publications around the world, translated into many languages. It took on a life of its own and eventually was read out in schools across my province, Ontario. The book was called My Chacha is Gay, meaning my uncle is gay. And it was from the perspective of a kid who had a gay uncle and he was just the sweetest, most wonderful uncle in the world. And the message really was simple, that his uncle was like anybody else. And it was unfair that he got so much hate and how the little boy didn't understand why people treated his beloved uncle this way. But the book caused an uproar among religious parents, mostly Muslim parents, especially, and the schools and school boards were threatened with lawsuits There were angry parents on the radio screaming about it. I was blown away by the amount of rage and hate. And one of Pakistan's largest bookstore chains refused to carry it too. Even though they were known to order in books for customers that weren't easily available there. And tons of people were tweeting at them, requesting it. 
going into the stores even to try and get them to order it, but uh, nope. Apparently it caused some rage a couple years ago in the UK too. But back to Toronto. Some parents called it Islamophobic. When there was no mention of Islam or religion anywhere in the book, you can see a video clip of uh, the slides from the book on my Patreon if you'd like to take a look. I think that's in my intro or bio or whatever. And I just recently took it down because I'm trying to build a sort of centralized website for my various types of work. So it's currently not available online for sale officially, but if you'd like to order one, do get in touch via email or Patreon, and I'm sure we can figure it out. Eventually, schools backed off and did not publicly read it out ever again. I know some teachers individually did in their classrooms, but it was never celebrated or read out in assemblies ever again. And this was before the term cancel culture came about. But fuck was I ever canceled. I got hate mail for like three years after that, regularly, saying that I was trying to destroy the sanctity of the Islamic family, saying that I was trying to corrupt little children, that I was evil, the devil, that I should be killed, stoned to death, that this book was worse than Salman Rushdie's satanic verses. I mean, it was intense and it was scary because you just don't know how bad this kind of thing could end up being. And I had no structural support. Schools backed off when Muslim parents and other religious parents complained. And it broke my heart for the Pakistani kids or the Muslim kids who were getting such a negative message from all this. That, okay, the new, more inclusive curriculum might be alright for Western kids, but not for you. Being gay and accepted is for them. It is not for you. It is not a part of our culture. It is unacceptable. And it just made me feel so angry and helpless. Let me just state, though, for clarity, that not all Muslims had this reaction. Of course, some of my biggest supporters were also Muslims and Pakistanis. But, at the same time, because this book was being cancelled by the religious... I was being noticed more, I suppose, and love-bombed by the atheist scene, which seemed incredibly progressive and supportive at the time. Fighting homophobia, fighting back against conservative bullshit, heck yeah, I thought. Little did I know how regressive this scene actually would turn out to be, and that the calibers would soon come out. I had just missed the beginning of Gamergate, I think, so didn't fully understand the discourse around that. I wish I did, because then I could have spotted the pattern sooner. And then I think towards the end of the same year, this pivotal moment for new atheism happened, where Ben Affleck told Sam Harris he was gross and racist for criticizing Islam on Bill Maher's show, and he was really angry and shouty about it. We have been sold this meme of Islamophobia where every criticism of the doctrine of Islam gets conflated with bigotry toward Muslims as people. This conflation does happen, but that's exactly what they hide behind because the water is so muddied and so confusing. Right. That is uh, it's, it's intellectually ridiculous. Even, so hold on, are you 
are you the person who understands the officially codified doctrine of Islam? You're the interpreter of that, so you can say this is. I'm actually well educated on this topic. I'm asking you. So you're saying if I criticize the, you're saying that Islamophobia is not a real thing. That if you're critical of something, it's not a real thing when we do it. Right. Turns out that it really is, Bill. I'm not denying that that certain people are bigoted against Muslims as people, and that's a problem. Bigoted, but. The, Why are you have, so hostile to, about this? It's, it's gross. It's racist. It's gross. It's racist. It's gross. It's racist. It's not. It's but it's so it's not. So, it's like saying it's so not. You're shifty Jew. You're not listening Absolutely to not. what but we are saying. You guys are saying if you want to be liberals, believe in liberal principles right. like freedom of speech, like right. um, you know where you're endowed by our uh, forefathers with an inalienable life, like all men are created. No, and we have to be able to criticize bad ideas. And of course we Islam, do. No liberal doesn't okay, want to okay. criticize bad ideas. But Islam but why when, is the mother load of bad ideas. Jesus. So we have we have That's ideas just a like, fact. like like slander. So, after that, I had written this sort of tongue-in-cheek piece for a Pakistani publication. From my perspective as a woman who grew up in a theocracy and was very frustrated that these conversations nudging towards progress and acceptance of minorities in the Muslim community were shut down before they could even get started. I mean, I still stand behind that basic message today, but I certainly didn't realize how sinister and right-wing Sam's intentions were on this topic. Neither him nor Bill Maher were trying to have a good-faith conversation. They weren't trying to help push for progress. I mean, they fucking hate every instance of progress here in the West. They were, in fact, coming at it from an anti-Muslim perspective, an anti-left perspective. Sam would eventually be shown to be a race science enthusiast, a white nationalism downplayer, a racism and bigotry denier. Bill Maher would embrace and platform more and more right-wing talking points and people on his show. He'd compare Milo Yiannopoulos to Christopher Hitchens. He would take Jordan Peterson seriously and elevate his profile. Please welcome Jordan Peterson. Great pleasure to meet you. You might have guessed. I, see, everything this man says, I think, is common sense. Uh, he's, you guys should have a baby together. Yeah, we should have a Just like Sam. Please enjoy my conversation with Jordan Peterson. Jordan, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Well, listen, you, you have the distinction of being, I think, without question, the person who my listeners most requested that I talk to. So congratulations. People really want to hear what you have to say. I think we should talk briefly about the reasons why you've suddenly become so visible, but I don't think we should spend a lot of time on them because I think that's territory where you and I will almost fully converge. Almost fully converge. Almost fully converge. And I think that's not what people are most interested in in having us talk about. You know, you talked about making an iron man out of your opponent, right? Steel manning, yeah, that was from Weinstein, yeah. Yes, precisely, yes. And so, you know, um, you're you're a pretty good steel man, and that's the sort of person that I'm interested in having a discussion with. We both have many fans and detractors who will work this out for us, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Neil say, I wish you well in your collisions with social justice warriors. I wish you well in your collisions with social justice warriors. Social justice warriors and everyone else who are still at your doorstep, no doubt. So keep up your energy and... 
Our pass will cross again. Thanks, Sam. United by their hatred of SJWs. And watching this all happen later down the road showed me that these people were in fact not interested in pushing back against regressive conservative religious ideas and figures. They were only interested in pushing back against those ideas if they came from a Muslim. Jordan fucking Peterson, who has many ideas about women, marriage, sex, enforced monogamy, masturbation, porn, that are fucking identical to a Salafist mullah. It's a substitute for the real adventure of life. And I do think that it leads to a certain kind of, um, perhaps, contempt. It leads to contempt, I would say. Um, and, and that can't be a good thing. I mean, I don't ever think, and you guys can ask yourself this question, I mean, have you ever met anybody who finished masturbating and then was proud about it? And- <laughs> stood up straighter because of it and you felt that they'd really conquered life as a consequence? I mean, I just don't believe that that's the that that's the, the general post-masturbation feeling. I don't believe that. I believe that it's 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 like a it's it's something you do when you when you don't have the right thing to do and, and it's an admission that you're a second rate player essentially. Something like that. Yikes. Apologies for the terrible sound on that clip, but I think he had multiple computers and fans and things running when he recorded that. So that was the best I could do. Anyway, these types of things were fine by them, apparently. I would later learn, or at least fine enough, that none of these extremely enlightened and liberal gentlemen would ever raise their voice to oppose these caveman-like, illiberal aspects of Jordan B. Peterson. At most, they would predictably disagree with him on the God stuff and pat themselves on the back for that. But that piece I wrote, in response to the whole Ben Affleck on Mara thing, also went very viral back in the day, too. Like, a couple of million views in a few days, if I remember correctly. It was published and republished in multiple places. Bill Maher tweeted it out and shared it on his Facebook, so did Michael Moore, and several other celebrities, too. I even got an invite to Bill Maher's show. Very glad now that that didn't work out because of my desire to remain anonymous. So, in that piece, I think it was titled Open Letter to Ben Affleck, I don't think I was ever rude about Ben's perspective, but I very politely disagreed that simply criticism of Islam would make someone gross or racist. And that was really the line that was sold to everyone in online atheism that they were only being called bigoted or racist because they were daring to criticize Islam in the same way as other religions, which obviously I now know isn't the case. The entire project of these IDW types is to make bigotry acceptable again by wrapping it up in shiny new packaging and calling it facts, logic, reason, and science. Their project is to strip things of context, of power balances, to make every conversation as ahistorical and decontextualized as possible. I mean, 
There's a reason and a context to why Islam and Christianity are critiqued differently in places where Muslims are a persecuted minority and Christians are the status quo. But alas, 2014 Inad did not get their intentions and took their claims of being against all forms of bigotry and also anti-Muslim bigotry at face value. <sighs> I think Ben Affleck was onto something, perhaps. <laughs> he certainly judged Sam far better than I did. Apologies, Ben. If only he would have handled that situation a bit better, the optics of it were not so good. The gross and racist bit unfortunately became a running joke and shield to kind of hide behind in the atheist scene. Such a stupid joke, too, that half a decade later, Dave Rubin is still on it weirdly dedicating his terrible book to Ben Affleck in a reference that most people not stuck in 2014 will probably miss. Anyway, that whole situation, I think, cemented my full-on entry into new atheism. I felt heard and seen and got a lot of love and support, but it wasn't going to last too long. Only as long as I kept my head down and performed my role of being the good ex-Muslim that only criticized Islam. Which, I mean, I was obviously not going to abide by. Especially as we got nearer to the Trump years and the Western right started to seem like a much bigger problem with far more sympathies across the board than I had initially thought. So that combination of things and events all happened and I was in. And as a blogger who had been writing about sexuality and the related harmfulness of modesty culture in my own community, I had also personally run into this weird dynamic where I was being called a bigot by some on the left for speaking out against forced modesty, like my own oppression. And of course, being in the scene, I had been primed to confront these situations and understand them in a very specific way. To think negatively of the Western left generally, especially as a woman of Muslim background. In all the discussions I encountered in the atheist scene, women like me were pitted against the left. And it took a lot of unpacking and unraveling to understand how wrong and detrimental that was. I am explaining all this in such minute detail because I want you to try and understand the lens I was seeing all these things through. You know this narrative of the left doesn't care for you, it abandons women like you while they have their slut walks and free the nipple campaigns and reject slut shaming all around. They romanticize and glorify burqas and criticize women like you for pushing back on Islamic modesty culture. That can be really compelling, especially if you don't have the full context of just how sexist and regressive and truly anti-feminist and anti-progress and anti-minority some of these so-called champions of women's rights and human rights are. In reality, they weaponize things like women's rights against Muslims. They only care about it when they can use it to further their anti-Muslimness and undermine feminism in the West. They don't give a shit about women's rights. I had to learn that the hard way. I mean, they pretend to, when it's some faraway abstract concept they can use to shit on the other, or to fearmonger about Muslimics. But if things aren't theocracy level bad, then women better shut the fuck up because their concerns are trivial, apparently. 
That narrative can be compelling because like most of their shitty propaganda, these things are built upon a tiny kernel of truth and then twisted in the worst ways possible. So some of it resonates and you're like, yeah, 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 that's right, I've seen it. But then you're not even scratching beyond the surface to see just how distorted it actually is. It's true there are major issues with how women are treated in many Muslim-majority countries. It's something I am genuinely devoted to countering, having suffered through these issues myself. And it is true that there's a double standard when it comes to how Western lefties approach things like the burqa versus things in their own culture that might slut-shame or put the onus on a woman to cover herself so as not to draw attention. But it is not true that this comes from some malicious white supremacy of wanting all the freedom for Western women while knowingly glorifying oppressive practices for non-Western women. A more sensible explanation would just be that people are more comfortable commenting on, scrutinizing, judging that which they are knowledgeable about and familiar with, and that this is further complicated by the power structures of minority versus majority groups, and the stakes are really fucking high right now because of the dangerous, violent, anti-Muslim sentiment that has spread throughout the globe, sometimes resulting in tragedies like the Christchurch massacre. And when there is a visible minority being persecuted and their visibility is often signaled by their attire, which also happens to make them a target for the far right, people who care about the way minorities are treated, are naturally not going to jump in, guns blazing, and pile on to visibly Muslim women. It is understandable and not a conspiracy of Western third-wave feminists to keep all the breast-bearing freedom for themselves or whatever. It sucks, too, because it does leave women like me between a rock and a hard place. Religious modesty garb can legitimately be triggering for women like me, and I wish that progressive wearers and defenders would contend with that, or address it, or simply acknowledge that fact as a first step, even. But I certainly wouldn't go running into the arms of Quillette or the fucking IDW because of this. But it's hard because someone in my position really doesn't have much of a voice to speak out against conservative practices and views in my own community without it adding to the chorus of the hateful anti-Muslim right. I mean... I won't get into too much detail on my views about Islamic modesty garb here because that is a very layered topic that needs an episode of its own and hopefully someday I can do that. But yeah, basically I am not a fan. Some of you who may know this already. (laughs) Being forced into modesty for a lot of your life can leave you with that side effect. However, there's a lot of nuance here. Forced modesty is one thing, but this is also a choice for some women. So we have to understand the difference there. And the headscarf or hijab has, especially in the post-9-11 world, evolved to be more than just a religious garment. It is political. It is identity. It is defiance against anti-Muslims. So I get that. I know wonderful people who are hijabis with very progressive politics. It is rooted in traditional religious conservative practices, but it has evolved beyond just that to being more symbolic for some. And then there are the deferring degrees of modesty garb. The face covering is a whole other situation that I have very different views about. 
So all that said, sometimes the Western left overcompensates for the bigoted right, and we get articles that actually truly are romanticizing the hijab, calling it a feminist statement or something. We get left media fetishizing it in absurd ways, too. Like, wow, first hijabi playboy model, hijabi Barbie. Those things are bizarre and sometimes painful for someone like me, especially children's playthings that reinforce modesty culture. But, unlike the rational genius brain atheists, I do not think this is about some Islamo-feminist alliance or the destruction of Western civilization or even Linda Sarsour's secret plot to implement Sharia law here. Partially, it's just capitalism, and partially, I think it's a reaction to all the racists and bigots hating on Muslims. I don't love it, or the glorification of it, but if I have to pick between demonizing people like me and my family, things that could lead to my loved ones being attacked and hurt, or a well-meaning but confused left media's one-dimensional portrayal of Muslims as being mostly trad hijab wearers, and yay, let's do a hijab-wearing solidarity day, I would rather take that than anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim racism shit, if those are my only choices. I truly wish I had a more concrete answer for you on how I think Western lefties should address the topic, but I don't have one. I do wish, though, that people would recognize the difference between someone like me speaking out about conservative practices in my community that I've felt hurt by and say, Fox News, fear-mongering about Muslim immigrants. But that, too, is further confused by the existence of Candace Owensy Muslims and ex-Muslims who will happily embrace Fox News or Breitbart or Quillette if we're getting real fancy with our racism. Yeah, so this conversation is a whole mess that many decent people do not understand how to navigate, and I totally get that. I think these things are probably best left to be intra-community battles where they can't be hijacked by bigots, but maybe we should consider a more diverse portrayal of Muslims in the media generally, not just the traditional conservative ones. Secular, cultural ones exist and need representation too. And maybe support diverse content creators that come at the topic of Islam from non-right-wing angles instead of not touching the topic with a 10-foot pole. Because we need to hear from people who can address these things from a left perspective rather than entirely hand the conversation over to the right. Islam is one of those topics that has been such a major, major overlap between atheism and the far right. How someone talks about Islam is usually a pretty good predictor of their other politics too, so I I do think we need to pay more attention on the left, especially in a volatile political climate like today's. We have people like Ayan Hirsi Ali out there spouting all kinds of horrendous, unbelievable shit. And often people who care about respecting minorities' lived experiences will back off because they don't quite know how to counter her strongly. I just saw someone called racist on Twitter for criticizing a Candace Owens tweet the other day. (laughs) Don't fall for that. That is just right-wing identity politics that they use to silence legitimate criticism. Like, Ayan Hirsi Ali is (laughs) full of shit. But because she has a tragic backstory, some of which was apparently fudged, she has acknowledged, but she has suffered through FGM, suffered through Islamic oppression, 
Because of all that, I find a lot of people hesitate to criticize her politics and her identity is something the identity politics hating right always used to try and shut people up. Michael Brooks and I once chatted about this conflation. He definitely knew what was up. I think this is the other problem that actually happens in the dark web scene. Is there's a no? Is that there? There was this real conflation. Like we were just talking about this in the office. I want to run this by you. Einhorst Ali's personal story and experience is one that, like, is horrifying. Mm-hmm. Reveals misogyny, mm-hmm. dangers of just fanaticism, and also uh, some very real, just literal physical courage on her part. Mm-hmm. Right now. Her her politics are fucking stupid. Yes. And and the way though that that scene conflated personal trauma narratives, which are actually really important. I'm not down. It's ironically, I, I have more space for them. He is sorely missed. I'd like to think that he would have enjoyed this miniseries. But yeah, that's pretty much my story, my trajectory into the extremely rational world of new atheism. Ironically, my identity was a large part of why I was embraced by so many anti-identity politics types in the scene. But uh, after sharing that whole story, I'm feeling kind of naked and exposed right now. I'm a pretty private person and going through like over a decade of online abuse and threats, varied groups of haters causes one to develop a bit of a thick skin and you kind of deal with it through irony and jokes, or at least I do. But this has been a bit of a different episode so far. I've been mostly non-jokey and vulnerable here and it feels kind of scary to be honest so uh be gentle with me (laughs) one time on my show um michael brooks had asked me how i didn't fall into this ex-muslim pandering to the right grift because it is such an easy grift and such a rewarding one too my question for you is, I mean, how was it, how did you manage to, if it's okay, I ask you a question. Please, yeah. How did you manage to, because I, because I get now more, I, when I first looked at this stuff, I just was like, who the fuck wants to, like, you know, it's boring, like, what, like, why, why would anybody read this shit? I really didn't get it, and then I started to realize you know, and I had a, not a lot of negative conclusions as to why, but then I did start to have a little bit more understanding when some people, actually people who sort of graduated, they said like, hey, you know, I read Sam Harris when I was 18 or something, and it helped me become, realize I didn't have to be a Mormon or something, and now and now I realize like the guy's kind of a schmuck, but it helped me at the time, yeah. and I started to form an understanding of that. But how did you get that liberation, but not, because I mean, honestly, I mean, even just from a career perspective, I mean, my God, you, I mean, you're doing great work and you're in the mix, but you could be on those platforms. Yes. I mean, that was a very easy career lane. <laughs> what, so what held you back? And I didn't get around to answering that fully because we got sidetracked by making fun of Gad Sad or something. <laughs> 
want to be recognized on the streets, you know? Unlike Gadsad, who makes a 10-tweet thread every time he's recognized by a cashier or something, like, you know... You know, watching that sad old prick, you know, he, he's not really on the radar, but it's no. so amazing. love that every time this... But for the record, I'd like to answer that properly now. For one, unfortunately, goddamn principles get in the way of that kind of thing. I did not go through all this shit to speak my mind against Islamists, only to join forces with conservatives in the West that just have a slightly different shade of the same types of values. No way. And for that reason, I likely will not ever get a $5 million mansion like Dave Rubin. And with Toronto real estate prices, <laughs> it'd probably be a $5 million shoebox-sized condo anyway. I may not have a mansion, but at least I have my dignity and integrity intact. And I think my decision to be anonymous online also removed any temptation to seek too much attention or fame. Being a parent now, it's great not to have to deal with my personal and public life mixing. I wouldn't want my family to ever be impacted by these vicious, nasty threats. And now it's kind of become part of my online persona too. It's kind of fun to have a secret identity. Maybe I'll do a live show someday in a giant brain costume. (laughs) Let me tell you though, it has been quite a wild ride, especially to observe the differences in how people treated me when I was a voice speaking out mostly about Islam versus now that I focus more on the Western right. Even if I may not have ever intended to support the Western status quo, just indirectly doing so by pushing back against the Muslim one has given me a glimpse into how beneficial that whole shtick can be for a minority person willing to keep that up. Now that I'm opposing the right-wingery of here and not there, of us and not them, I certainly am not getting the opportunities, platforms, or interviews I was once getting. I'm not getting any invites to Bill Maher's show, thankfully, and stuff like that, you know? The contrast has been really stark. That's why so many people in my position are unfortunately incentivized to shift right. Book deals and friends in high places outweigh principles for a lot of people, I guess. And uh, that's why it's pretty amazing to hear IDW fans call me a grifter because I actively worked hard to reject the grift, to avoid the grift. Anyway, that's more than enough about me for this episode. Let's talk some more about how incredibly amusing it is to see so many anti-identity politics people cling desperately to identity as a shield. Let's, uh, Let's explore that some more. How many use identity as an excuse to deny, downplay bigotry? How identities like mine are used by status quo warriors? And you know who is one of those people? You'll never guess. Sam Harris, of course. (laughs) He thinks he's above tribalism because he can list some diverse friends. Diverse friends who mirror his views on anti-woke bullshit, of course. 
on 18th May 2018 in response to Robert Wright's piece titled Sam Harris and the Myth of Perfectly Rational Thought. Sam tweeted, Any honest journalist would notice that Ayan Majid Nawaz and at Solidish, which is Andrew Sullivan, are among the people I most often promote and defend, and who most often promote and defend me. So, Robert, what's my tribe? (laughs) I mean, what the fuck is that even supposed to mean? Your tribe is anti-left, anti-woke assholes who try to retain more credibility than Fox News or Breitbart. That's the brand. That's the tribe. And it's not hard for anyone paying attention to see that. Let me read you a little passage from that article. Not only is Harris capable of transcending tribalism, so is his tribe. Reflecting on his debate with Klein, Harris said that his own followers care, quote, massively about following the logic of a conversation, end quote, and probe his arguments for signs of weakness, whereas Klein's followers have more primitive concerns. Quote, are you making political points that are massaging the outraged parts of our brains? Do you have your hands on our amygdala, and are you pushing the right buttons? End quote. Of the various things that critics of the new atheists find annoying about them, and here I speak from personal experience, this ranks near the top the air of rationalist superiority they often exude. Whereas the great mass of humankind remains mired in pernicious forms of illogical thought. Chief among them, of course, religion. People like Sam Harris beckon from above. All of us, if we will just transcend our raw emotions and rank superstitions, can be like him. Even if precious few of us are now. <laughs> That hits the nail on the head there. (laughs) The lack of self-awareness in judging others while you're ridiculously, irrationally blinded by your own anti-woke ideology to the point where you blame wokeness for everything. Sam even found a way to indirectly pin the fucking insurrection on wokeness, remember? We talked about this last episode. (laughs) And then, to claim you're not tribal is incredible. I mean, I hate to repeat myself, but they literally did a photo shoot for a silly tribe called the IDW. It doesn't get more tribal than that. As much as they try to disown it now. He did this bit in the Ezra Klein conversation, too. You'll read often in this debate. I think there's something else, particularly lately, which you might call anti-anti-racism, which is folks who are fundamentally more concerned, or fundamentally primarily concerned, with the overreach of what you would call the anti-racists. And actually, that's where I think you are. And one of the things that, that, that I hear in you is that whenever something gets near the question of, of 
political correctness, the, the canary in the coal mine for the way you yourself have been treated, you get very, very, very strident. They're in bad faith. They're not being able to speak rationally. They're not being able to have a conversation that is actually going forward on a sound evidentiary basis. And the thing that I, I don't think that you're self-reflective enough about, and, and I apologize, I, I, I know I know that I statements are better than you statements, but I do want to push this idea at you for you to think about it, is that there are things that are threats to you. There are things that are threats to your tribe, to your future, to your career. And those threats are very salient. So you see what happened to Charles Murray, the kind of criticism he gets, and that sets off every alarm bell in your head. And you bring them on the show, and you're like, we're, we're, we're going to fix this. I'm going to show that they can't do this to you. And you look around, and you say, Ezra, you think we shouldn't take away all social, all efforts to redress racial inequality, but that's a bias. You're, you're, you're just, you know, you're just being led around by, by your political opinions. Where I am standing outside the debate, acting rationally, and to me, that's actually not what's happening at all. I think that you're not here. I, I think you're missing a lot because you are very radically increasing the salience of things that threaten your identity, your tribe, without, which is not the craziest thing to do in the world. It's not a terrible thing to do. We all do it. Without admitting or maybe even without realizing that's what you're doing. I think that there is a lot of discussion like this in the public sphere just generally at the moment. There are a lot of white commentators, of which I am also one, who look at what's happening on some campuses or look at what happens on, on Twitter mobs or whatever, and they see a threat to them. And the concern about political correctness goes way, 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 way up. And then the ability to hear what the folks who are, are making the arguments actually say to hear what the so-called social justice warriors are actually worried about dissolves. And I think that's a really big blind spot here. I think it's making it hard for you to see when people have good faith disagreement with you. And I also think it's making it harder for you to see how to wait some of the different concerns that are operating in this conversation. You're you're so concerned about Murray and what well, is that, happening. That's, when, that, again, he's that's a actually extremely confusing. successful that, scholar in Washington. I mean, in your whole show, Sam, you've had 120-some episodes. And if I and I could have miscounted this, I, I totally take that. It's uh, amazing you would think this is here. relevant, but yes, two, give me the numbers. I think you've had two African Americans as guests. I think you need to explore the experience of race in America more and not just see that as identity politics, see that as information that is important to talking about some of the things you want to talk about, but also to hearing from some of the people who you've now written out of the conversation to hear. Okay, so th this is a, uh, again, I'm not, uh, this, is, this is the kind of thing that I would be tempted to score as bad faith in some way. <laughs> In someone else, but I, but, I, but I actually, I think this is a point of confusion, but it is nonetheless confusion here. So your accusation that I'm reasoning on the basis of my tribe here is just false. This is the whole game I play. I mean, this is, this is my main focus in just constructing my worldview and having conversations with other people. And what, when I'm thinking about things that are true, that, are, that stand a chance of being universal, that's, that stand a chance of scaling, right? These are, these are the kinds of things that are not subordinate to a person's identity. And the reason why I'm defending Murray to the degree that I, that I have been is not because I have this, this incredible sympathy with him because he's a white guy like me. Um, I, would, I defend 
Muslim reformers who are not white and ex-Muslims who are not white. I've, I've spent way more time defending Ayan Hirsi Ali than Charles Murray. And she's the victim of the same kind of leftist uh, stupidity, frankly. Her demonization has the exact same structure that Murray's does. And I have spent an enormous investment of time and money, frankly, defending Ion. Uh, so your charge is false with respect to my motivations. There's so many layers of confusion here. I mean, this is just, it's a, and again, it's not just yours, it's everybody's. It's got to be a majority of both our audiences. But Did you notice that the only options available are that you're A, a bad faith actor, or B, confused, or just not understanding his brilliance, or C, just saying untrue things. And it's not just a few people who are confused about Logic Lord Sam's brilliant views, it's actually a majority of people, apparently. It's not like he could be wrong or anything. It's that a majority of his own audience, and Ezra Klein's audience, and the rest of the fucking planet, just fail to grasp his galaxy brain ideas. Oh, and how could he possibly be tribal if he's defending right-wing bigot Ayan Hirsi Ali more than right-wing bigot Charles Murray? Makes perfect sense. There's only one exact way to be tribal, and that's whatever Sam says it is. I don't know. I, I, I just, I see this differently than you do. Well, I, I get that. I, well, you, but not in precisely the ways you think you do. I mean, I, I'm in the, once again, in the having the bewildering experience of agreeing with virtually everything you said there, and yet it has basically no relevance to what I view as our underlying disagreement. So, because I mean, we, you, you have the bewildering to... experience because you, you don't, you don't realize when you keep saying that everybody else is thinking tribally, but you're not, that that is our disagreement. Well, no, because I, I, I know I'm not thinking tribally. Well, no, because I, I, I know I'm not thinking tribally. Well, no, because I, I, I know I'm not thinking tribally. <laughs> in this respect. Well, that is because, our disagreement. No, because... <laughs> oh, okay. He knows he's not thinking tribally and that everybody else just is. And we should just take his word for it, because he's never ever wrong, obviously. And he would know if he was being tribal. I mean, airtight logic, that. Well, no, because I, I, I know I'm not thinking tribally in this respect. Well, that is because, our disagreement. <laughs> no, because, because I share your political biases there. Like, I, I, I would have, I would line up with you completely. If I gave in to my bias, my social bias, I would become, I, I can't tell you what a relief it would be to recognize that Nisbet and Turkheimer are reasoning better than anyone else in this field. I, I can't tell you what a relief it would be to realize that Gould's book, The Mismeasure of Man, was right on the mind. I don't think it would be a relief to you at all. Oh, this old trick. Look, look, my, my biases are completely with you. It's just that I'm so, so rational and above having biases that I rise above them. And unfortunately, the science just takes me to race and IQ. God, how I wish it weren't true. How I wish I could just be irrational for once and give in to my biases. But I can't. This is my curse. 
I am a slave to facts and logic. I really wish it weren't true that white people are genetically smarter than black people. It hurts me to learn this, to acknowledge it, but it's science and we cannot deny facts. He loves this whole act. I don't think it would be a relief to you at all because the thing that you said when you brought it, and I, I feel like now we're just getting back to the beginning. Well, and no, so no. let this go, and I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you have the last word after this. But right at the beginning of all of all this with Murray, you said you look at Murray and you see what happens to you. You were completely straightforward about that. That you look at what happens to him and you see what happens to you. Exactly this. Exactly this. This is the tribalism he's completely disregarding. The tribalism of all the cranks that are told they have shitty ideas. It's not tribalism. I think the relief experience of Look, we all have a lot of different identities we're part of at all times. You know, I do too, right? I, I have all kinds of identities that you can call forward. All of them can bias me simultaneously. And, and the questions, of course, are, are which dominate and how am I able to, to counterbalance them through, through my process of information gathering and, and adjudication of that information. But I think that your core identity in this is as someone who feels you get treated unfairly by politically correct mobs. And but, but that's, that's, I, that's your, your plain, your, that is not identity politics. That is, that that, is my no, experience that is, that as is a what, public intellectual trying to Yeah, you see, what he engages in is not identity politics. No, uh It is just a reasonable intellectual talking about ideas. But when someone on the left talks about ideas, like how racism and sexism and other forms of bigotry are bad, that is tribalism. That is definitely identity politics. Doesn't matter how many diverse people stand up in solidarity with BLM, it's always going to be identity politics for Sam. That is what folks from the dominant group get to do. They get to say, my thing is in identity politics, only yours is. I will tell you, Sam, when, when people who do not look like you hear you telling them that this is just identity politics, they don't think, God, he's right. That is just identity politics. They think this is my experience and you don't understand it. You just said it's your experience and they don't understand it. You think that's Glenn Lowry's view of it or Ayan Hirsi Ali's view of it or Majid Nawaz's Look, guys, he has black and brown friends who agree with him. How? How can it be identity politics? Especially when he's using their identities to hide behind. It's not possible that he's engaging in identity politics. Right in this conversation where he's denying that he ever engages in identity politics. <laughs> he's seriously, though, he's like a parody of a rational bro. And again, my career, I view my career as being totally committed to amplifying good ideas and, and criticizing bad ideas insofar as they relate to the, the most important swings of human well-being. This conversation with Ezra Klein did Sam no favors. It exposed him to be whiny, bratty, blinded by ideology, unwilling to accept that people can disagree with him, and aside from his gross thought experiments and endless defending of race and IQ while simultaneously claiming he has no interest in the topic, it made his utter lack of self-awareness glaringly obvious, too. 
right? I mean, so but to give, give you a crazy example, and, and this actually uh, strikes a tangent to what we've been talking about in terms of population differences and their, in many cases, impressively genetic underpinnings. So you have the fact that, uh, and this is actually in, in Reich's recent book, of which that op-ed was a, was a, a crib, the finalists in the 100-meter dash in the Olympics, the male finalists, uh, every single finalist since 1980 has been of West African descent, right? That does not appear to be an accident. That, and it doesn't matter what country they came from, right? It, and it does not appear to be best explained by environment. And there's a very similar story that can be told about East Africans with respect to the marathon, right? So this is, there's this shocking disparity in, in this particular type of athletic ability that is segregated in this way uh, based on, on population ancestry. It happens to be a great ability and, you know, and it's just it's all good for, the, for, for the, those sprinters, right? But imagine if you and I as Jews decided to worry that maybe there was some underlying anti-Semitism that kept Jews out of the finals of the 100-meter dash in the Olympics, right? Is, is, do you think there's a Jew on earth who thinks that? Uh, I would doubt it, right? But it's, it's certainly possible to think. And this, what, what, what is the analogy you're drawing well, exactly well, so This is to rehabilitate the, 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 the statement that, that Andrew made in his piece that you, that you cast off as being somehow ethically or politically deranged. The idea that understanding the facts... Of, of genetics, in this case, might inoculate us against false charges of bigotry, like seeing bigotry where it doesn't exist, right? And in this case, if we as two Jews were one... I'm one, sorry, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying here. Are you comparing the idea that there are not Jews in the finals of the New York City or Boston Marathon or whatever to the idea, to, to the conversation about whether African Americans, after what has gone on in this country's history, I'm, I'm trying to scoring worse than IQ. I'm trying to. Yeah, I just want to. I, I want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. No, no. It, it sounds like you want to to try to give some uh, uh, politically correct uh, slam dunk. You, no, you're, you, you call but, it politically correct, no. but I'm actually, you're, you're bringing up in this conversation, I didn't make you no, do this. No, this no, no you didn't. It's a point that, well, a point that, that clarifies. Yeah. I'm trying to sharpen up Andrew's point that you, you seem to not see the point of, is that if you go looking for bigotry as your explanation for every difference you see. I mean, this is, this again, that you can look at, you can read about this in Reich's book. I mean, if you have populations that have their means slightly different genetically, like, you know, we have, we, you know, 80% of a standard deviation difference, you're going to see massive difference in the tail ends of the distribution. Just an extremely normal dude with an extremely normal non-identity politics fixation on population differences, race, and identity. <laughs> and if you so much as try to clarify that the insane shit you're hearing is actually what he's saying, then, well, you're just some SJW trying to get in a politically correct slam dunk. Very normal stuff. And as if this conversation wasn't embarrassing enough, he went on to do the same whole I'm the smartest boy in the world so I don't do identity politics dance on Kara Swisher's as well. If liberals won't defend specific ideas like, you know, like, you know, like secure borders, 
the people will elect fascists to do the job. You know, enough people care about these things that if you're going to if you're going to call everyone a racist who, who's concerned about immigration, eventually only a racist who doesn't care about his reputation anymore will sure, be elected but you're, you're, to do that job. So you're framing this that everybody thinks that there's not gradations because no, we're in this no, culture there, where there are gradations. But we, I'm, I'm worried that the left is ignoring the, the left gradation. as a whole. Yeah, yeah. as a group. There, there are many people. Are you as a group and your gang, whatever gang you particularly belong to? Well, that? I, well so again. The, the, it seems like you're all this different a, this, Yeah, this is another idea that mm-hmm. everyone is playing identity politics. This, mm-hmm. comes, this comes right out of Ezra's mouth, right? You know, it's like, it's it's a sign of my white privilege that I think I'm not playing identity politics. It's only the it's only the other people who are playing identity politics. No, I think everybody is doing it. Yeah, but, I'm, yeah, but I, I would deny that. I, I mean, what's my identity? What's my identity? I don't know. What is your identity? I, I, I don't have I don't have one relevant to any political conversation. I don't have one relevant to any political conversation. I don't have one relevant to any political conversation. I don't have one relevant to any political conversation. He so doesn't engage in identity politics that he doesn't even have an identity, you see? Except he's happy to use his Jewish identity as a shield for whenever he wants to downplay white supremacy or engage in creepy, weird hypotheticals about a Jewish hoarding gene or say that anti-Semitism is no big deal in the U.S. even in the aftermath of a synagogue shooting. If you're so anti-identity politics, why bring up your Jewish identity at all in those situations? But we might find out that certain stereotypes are true. I mean, you know, Turkheimer used an example in one of his pieces, I think it was the, the, the second one, where he said, what if someone does a genetic analysis of materialism uh, or finds, you know, uh, you know multivariate uh, genes that, that, that uh, co-vary with, with a person's materialism, and we find that these, these genes are overexpressed among Jews. What then? Right now, he put, he put this out as though, like, this was going to be so radioactive that, you know, it's just going to bowl me over or bowl anyone over who's, you know, what didn't care about the black-white data but we'll all of a sudden care about the Jewish data. But, I mean, that's, that's like a perfectly legitimate question. It's like a perfectly legitimate question. It's like a perfectly legitimate question. And I'm not suggesting anyone study that. And I, again, I would, I, would, I would worry about the ethics of anyone who, want, I mean, the wilderness of all possible things to study, wanted to devote his or her life to studying that. But that's the kind of thing that could just emerge from, you know, the study of hoarding behavior. If someone studies the psychological problem of hoarding and they study the genetics of it, and then they just happen to, to discover that the genetics are, are represented differently in different populations and Ashkenazi Jews, of which, you know, half of my ancestry is, of which, you know, half of my ancestry is, uh, have more of this, the hoarding genes than other people. Um, do we deal with that like adults? Or do we vilify the, the person who merely spoke about the data? That's the, that's the bright line I'm trying to get you to acknowledge. I mean, to take anti-Semitism. So I'm Jewish, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm Jewish, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm Jewish, right? Mm-hmm. Is anti-Semitism a problem? Well, yeah, it's a problem. But how big a problem is it? Well, in the States, you know, even in the immediate aftermath of a synagogue shooting, it's not that big a problem. I'm accused of being a white supremacist, right? Or of dog whistling to white supremacists. That's the level of the criticism here. 
or not being worried about white supremacy because I'm a racist who sort of agrees with their whole program. Well, first of all, I'm Jewish. I mean, come on. This is literally the, I'm on the left. I'm a gay married man. Pay no attention to what I actually say and promote and do excuse that Dave Rubin has used for years. In fact, Sam has used a version of that to downplay Milo, too. He's a kind of performance artist. I mean, he's, he's just winding up the left. And, you know, perhaps I've missed it, but I haven't seen anything from him that is real racist bigotry. Please take this caveat on board. I have not read all of Milo's stuff uh, or much of it. Maybe there's something I've missed. Feel free to point that out to me. But the Milo I've seen is very far from being a neo-Nazi or someone who is whose attitudes are truly of the right. That's probably not an accident. I mean, he's flamboyantly gay and half-Jewish, I believe. I don't know how right-wing he could be in the end. Milo is definitely not right-wing. No way. How can he be when he's flamboyant? And of course, he's not a Nazi. He just karaoke's with them, consults with them, and has a strange interest in Nazi symbols. That's all. (laughs) Please also note the classic heresism of putting out a strong vocal defense of some far-right character on his very large platform but also giving himself the out of, oh, but I don't know everything about them, so you can't call me out for defending them or saying they're not so bad. I am very smart. Also, definitely no Jewish far-right people exist. Stephen Miller, Ben Shapiro. This is what happens, kids, when you don't understand that even the modern far-right and modern bigotry is diverse and intersectional. Sam has been proven so absolutely correct about Milo not being right-wing that uh, Milo has announced recently that he's opening a conversion therapy facility and is now quote-unquote ex-gay. Yeah, definitely not right-wing. Sam hates identity politics so much that he has a handful of black friends who confirm all his anti-woke and anti-racism narratives, as I've mentioned on Woking Up before. Right-wing identity politics is the most clownish form of ID Paul there is. There couldn't be a more shallow or stupid lens to see the world through. Michael Brooks totally got their obsession with identity politics, too. Here's another clip from one of my chats with Michael. You know, I'm not somebody who in any way has any time for or agrees with the version of identity politics, which is actually pretty small in my experience, that actually literally says, like, well, you can't make an objective analysis of something because you're, you know, a white man or whatever, or you can't compete with that person because you don't have the same identity. They practice that to such a profound and embarrassing and essentialist degree, almost more than anybody else I've seen in modern politics. The same people... Like Dave Rubin. Oh my god, Dave Rubin's the... I mean, he's hysterical example of it, but the the same people who will like, oh, 
oh, you're distorting Sam. Like, he's not racist. He's just promoting, you know, scientifically and culturally undermined, discredited concepts of race disparity based in biology. But he's just trying to have an open exchange. You're in very dangerous him. times. Very dangerous times. And then the next, and then the next sentence, you know, I'm uh, racist because I, I don't know, I mispronounced Majid Nawaz's name and said he's an idiot. <laughs> have you noticed how Majid Nawaz drops that he's a person of color in like every random tweet to every random critic? Like signed, yeah. a person of color signed, yes. a Muslim. Just it's like, dude, it says he's gay. This, this is actually yeah. this, like, this is the dumbed down essentialist identity politics that actually I disagree with. They make so much hate over and they practice more than anybody else on the scene. Yes, like Paul Joseph Watson saying, oh, the people who didn't support, you know, Marine Le Pen are no feminists because she's a woman. Like, what the fuck? Exactly. I mean, if a lefty said you gotta view this person's politics in a particular way because of the color of their skin or their orientation or their gender and only those things disregarding what they say and do, they'd be a fucking joke. But we have IDW geniuses who constantly accuse the left of this shit and use it themselves in the next breath without batting an eye. My favorite example of it, though, is how Sam speaks about Ayan Hirsi Ali, who really isn't all that feminist or that smart, but somehow, because of her identity, people should defer to her no matter how much nonsense she spouts. And it's funny he expresses that time and time again, considering when he's talking about the evil wokists, this is the caricature he's painting. One of, one of the things that I'm getting a lot of pain for now is my opposition to identity politics. I think that this idea that the end game for civilization is that we all get more and more identified with our subgroup, and then we have this, you know, war of grievances, right? Or you know, or this, this grievance Olympi- Olympics where you have, you know, um, you know, who, what trumps what? You know, you're you're black, but you're also a lesbian, but you're and you're not very tall. I mean, what, what variable can you stack on 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 the others so as to be absolutely beyond reproach in, in, in espousing your political opinions. I think that if we are actually anywhere near moral and intellectual and therefore ultimately political bedrock, our views about what, how, we should do, how we should live and what we should do have to float free of identity. Is that so, Sam? Is that so? Hmm. I just saw... Ayan Hirsi Ali give a talk at a university for the first time in three years since she was deplatformed at Brandeis. And it's a fairly conservative college, Pepperdine, you know, an explicitly Christian college. And she ran through her whole life story on stage, starting with female genital mutilation, abuse in school, escaped a forced marriage, became a member of parliament. I mean, she's just a true feminist success story, right? True feminist success story, right? True feminist success story, right? Hmm, this sounds a lot like stacking variables so as to be absolutely beyond reproach in espousing your political opinions. When Me Too came up, she expressed blanket support for it but she said, we have to keep a sense of proportion. There are the, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. And then there are people who just put a hand where it's not wanted and you slap it away. She was trying to give some, articulating this spectrum of misbehavior that we need to differentiate. 
And as she's talking about this, again, she had just spent a half hour describing in a, in a background so replete with abuse, patriarchal abuse, that you would think it would it would have earned her intersectionality points of a sort that you know you few people have. That is not how any of this works, as we covered earlier. You can truly have experienced abuse, and that's very unfortunate and sad, but you can also still be a terrible person with terrible views and terrible politics that absolutely no one has to take seriously. How steep the hill is that we have to climb psychologically with the woke, Uh, and this was born in to me very vividly when I when I last saw you speak in public uh, this was when when you came out to um, California and you were you were speaking at Pepperdine uh, which is a, a college in Los Angeles uh, and my wife Annika and I were sitting in the audience and uh, you know you you gave your life story at the beginning your blasphemy detonate you know in the minds of, of two young women sitting behind me and you know you know irony of ironies these were almost certainly I mean they were these were two you know white girls white girls white girls Mr. identity politics hater over here has to fixate on people's skin color normally he hates when the wokes talk about white privilege and such things but not in this instance. These were two, you know, white girls who were almost certainly well-off and as insulated from the real problem of gender inequality as any two young women on earth. There's a kind of moral panic happening around variables of gender and race on the left that is making it impossible to even parse the statements of a Somali woman, of a Somali woman, of a Somali woman who just recapitulated the entire Enlightenment success story of, of reclaiming secularism and modernity and humanistic values in her own case in a few short years. White women criticized a Somali woman? How could they possibly do such a thing? They're white and she is not. You can't disagree with her, white people. See how intersectional she is. And also intersectionality is bullshit woke speak. But not right now when I'm trying to use it to my advantage. (laughs) Sam is such a consistent guy, isn't he? So I thought, after his whole IDW retirement, that maybe Sam was a bit embarrassed by people like Ayan and was going to try and distance himself since she's made absurd, embarrassing claims of Biden wanting Sharia and Kamala promoting Marxism and whatnot. But no, it turns out he's still out there championing her as the one true real feminist. He even appeared on her first ever podcast episode, just this past Feb. Uh, I think this is true. You're the only person I have ever sent a piece of fan mail to. And the, the this, so now I'm, I'm one for one in, in the perfect confirmation, uh, uh, or rather the perfect consummation of, of sending a fan letter because our friendship is the direct result of my doing that. So uh, I'm very happy to be speaking with you once again. 
And I remember that, Sam. I remember receiving your letter when I was in uh, Parliament in the Netherlands. Um, I remember opening it. I remember reading the whole thing through. And what a conversation they had, where between transphobic rants, Sam stated that he was semi-white because he's Jewish. I have no reason to doubt that this is real, that some number of people feel like they are in the wrong body. And then the question is what to do about that. Uh, On top of that real phenomenon, there is, I, I think, almost certainly a component of, of social contagion uh, hitting, you know, y- you know, young young girls in this case at a an especially vulnerable time when they're be- you know, becoming adolescents uh, and going through puberty. And we have to worry about this kind of social contagion. If there's if if the, if there's a mimetic problem here, where girls are being convinced that um, they have some kind of you know gender dysphoria, uh, and they're being led to do something uh, surgical about it, or led to take hormones, or or both. Um, you know that's a that's that's a problem we we want to understand. The, the trouble I have gotten into being a, you know, I mean, you, you've, amazingly, you've gotten into the same trouble yourself, but it, you know, it's been, in my case, it, it's more obvious how this happens. Being a white non-Muslim, right? Uh, yeah, Jewish, Jewish, yes, Jewish, white, non-Muslim, um, if, insofar as Jews are actually white. I mean, the problem with, the problem with being Jewish is, is that you're white for, with respect to the left, but you're actually not white with respect to the far right, anti, you know, anti-Semitic exactly. right. So you, you, yeah. you, you can't get it right if you're Jewish. You I'm get sorry. it from both sides. So I blame yeah. the Jews for this problem. <laughs> all sides. You get it from all sides, yeah. So uh, the issue, you know, being a, a, a semi-white guy a semi-white guy, a semi-white guy criticizing Islam and, and just, just making the point that our religions are different. They don't teach precisely the same thing. Really, really hates that identity politics. I hope you're starting to see. Anyway, I think it is time for this episode to come to an end. And if you disagree with anything I said on here, please remember that I'm a brown woman who once lived in a theocracy, so you can't disagree with me. Or at least check your skin color before you attempt to do so. (laughs) So I planned on covering much, much more in this episode, but it's kind of gotten out of hand how much time I've spent on it already, so I have to close this off now, and I'll pick it up where we left off next time. And we will shine that spotlight on Sam's feminist hero, Ayan Hirsi Ali. It is gonna be good. But for now, I will leave you with a magnificent clip from Sam. Imagine being so rational and above identity politics that you think, hmm, let's talk about the trolley problem, but with race. Even designing self-driving cars presents potential ethical problems that we need to get 
great about. Any self-driving car needs some algorithm by which to rank order bad outcomes. So if you want a car that will avoid a child who dashes in front of it in the road, uh, perhaps by driving up on the sidewalk, you also want a car that will avoid the people on the sidewalk or preferentially hit a mailbox instead of a baby carriage. Right, so you need some intelligent sorting of outcomes here. Well, these are moral decisions. Do you want a car that is unbiased with respect to the age and size of people or the color of their skin? Would you like a car that was more likely to run over white people than people of color? That may seem like a peculiar question. Well, yes, Sam, that is a rather peculiar question. But if you do psychological tests, say a trolley problem tests on liberals, and this is the one psychological experiment where that I'm aware of where liberals come out looking worse than conservatives reliably. If you test them uh, on whether or not they would be willing to sacrifice one life to save five or one life to save a hundred, and you give subtle clues as to the color of the people involved. If you say that LeBron belongs to the Harlem Boys Choir and there's some scenario under which he can be sacrificed to save Chip and his friends who study music at Juilliard, they simply won't take a consequentialist approach to the problem. They will not sacrifice a black life to save any number of white lives. Whereas if you reverse the variables, they will sacrifice a white life to save black lives rather reliably. Now, conservatives, strangely, are unbiased in this paradigm, which is to say colorblind. Well, do we like bias here? Do you want a self-driving car that preferentially avoids people of color? You have to decide. We either build it one way or the other. So this is an interesting phenomenon where technology is going to force us to admit to ourselves that we know right from wrong in a way that many people imagine isn't possible. Thanks for listening to Woking Up. You can support this show by sharing it or via patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian Mangoes. And a special thanks to Intellectual Dark Wave for helping out on the musical front.